it's another one of these situations where you know I think that we need to. Um, it's very easy to kind of um, take an extreme position and kind of say, well, you know, we should do it all natural, or kind of go the other way and say, you know, the future is kind of by hacking everything and uh, becoming kind of you know, transhuman. Um, when actually, I think that you know the reality. I think that the challenge is, is how do we kind of navigate um, and try and take the best from these different approaches and and take a more kind of thoughtful, seasonal approach to life and work that's more sustainable, that actually helps us to try and take some of the benefits from these different approaches and, and also maybe mitigate some of the potential downsides as well. Happy start of the week, everyone. This is Jeff. Welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN podcast. Our guest this week is James Hewitt. He is the head of science and innovation at Hinsta Performance and a researcher at Loughborough University. His work and research focuses on holistic well-being of knowledge workers, and he specifically is searching for methods to sustain acute cognitive performance without compromising health in the process. He consults for a variety of clients, including Formula One, Fortune 500, C-suite executives, and he was also previously a professional cyclist. We discuss a number of practical topics you can apply to your life, including approaching knowledge work as an endurance sport for your mind, the challenges of research studies on cognition, and how to interpret cognitive performance data, and the impact of technology on learning and attention span. If you're tuning in via audio, remember to hit that subscribe button for weekly episodes. For folks on YouTube, please subscribe and hit that bell to enable post notifications. Without further ado, let's get right to it. Hey, James, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for inviting me. So you have an interesting background, and I think cut from a similar cloth from folks in the HVMN community, where you come from a sports physiology exercise background and also have a foot in practicization and making the academia work into something tangible. Curious to zoom back to the beginning. You know, how did you get interested in this whole field of improving human performance? You know, it's actually almost 15 years ago, maybe even a bit more, actually. I moved to France to pursue a career as a professional cyclist. Okay. Basically, at the age of 19, I decided that I wanted to try my luck. And so I moved to France. At that time, there wasn't a lot of uh, structure in the United Kingdom, where I'm from, in terms of helping road cyclists develop their careers. The thing to do was still to pack your bags and move to the continent. Mm. So I moved to France and I was riding for a regional amateur team. And then gradually my career progressed. I, I ended up riding for quite a good um, uh, elite under 23 team. And that was linked with one of the professional teams. So, you know, we were all kind of told we'd have a shot at, uh, at superstardom if we were good enough. But I made a decision that basically if I reached the end of my under 23 career and I wasn't realistically knocking on the door of a good professional contract, then I'd go back to university. And while I got to ride full time for three years, for three seasons, once I got to that final year as an under 23, I had to be honest. And I knew that I really didn't have quite what it took to get to the top of that sport. But during that time, one of the interesting things that happened is that it really cultivated my passion for measuring and improving human performance. And I was a very early adopter of technologies like power meters, for example, because I wasn't the most naturally talented athlete. So I knew that I needed to think really carefully about putting my effort in the right place at the right time, quantifying my training, quantifying the racing where I could to really try and get the most out of my physiology and get the best adaptation. And I realized along the way that other people were interested in this kind of knowledge and I wanted to build on it. So I returned to the UK. I studied sports science um, at an institution called Loughborough University. And then eventually I set up my own coaching business. And now, you know, a few of the people that I worked with were elite and, and professional endurance athletes, particularly cyclists. But actually, the people who paid the bills were amateur cyclists. Hmm. They were people who had very demanding jobs in London, near to where I was based at the time. So they were finance professionals and they were architects and they were solicitors. And for whatever reason, outside of those incredibly demanding jobs and those 14, 16 hour workdays, they decided that they wanted to race 100 mile bike races and do Ironman triathlons as well. Reminds me of a lot of folks in Silicon Valley who are their execs and they're into their Ironman. It's definitely like a set of personality. Absolutely. Yeah. And they were my kind of core clients and I loved working with them. But there's a challenge and that challenge was their work day was a black box. 
And I started to become intrigued by what was going on during their workday because I could see in their training data and the other variables that I was measuring that what was going on in the workday was having a significant effect. Mm. Really, it was exerting a load, which I couldn't really account for, except for in the outcome on their training, you know, the bad days. In which biomarkers were you measuring at the time or still measuring? It was quite simple, really. I mean, one of the things that I actually think is the most important to monitor is the rating of perceived exertion for a session. You know, actually, the great thing about rating of perceived exertion is that it integrates so many different signals from your body, um, from your brain. It represents kind of what how you feel. And actually, there's a really strong relationship between rating of perceived exertion and actually our endurance performance, how long we can sustain an effort for. And one of the things that I'd see straight away was actually what was going on in the workday was having a very significant effect on how hard people felt the sessions were. And it's very intuitive, you know, had a bad day at work, suddenly the interval session is harder. But I'd also start to see even kind of changes in their power output, how long they could sustain efforts for, um, the rate of recovery in between intervals, for example. You see a significant effect on sleep in terms of sleep and sleep disruption. You know, at that time, we were just starting to get into kind of some wearable, some more wearable measurements, and which wasn't perfect, but it was accurate enough for them. I could see change in an individual and direction. Right. You get some directional data, at least. Exactly. Yeah. And so I started to say, you know, I've got to try and understand what is going on during this workday better. And I need to try and quantify it. And so I started to apply tools and frameworks from sports science to try and understand knowledge work better. So the kind of work they're doing, you know, they were cognitive endurance athletes in many ways. And and I started to try and understand it. And during that time, I basically had a revelation. And my revelation was that knowledge work fundamentally is a cognitive endurance activity. And I could apply many tools, frameworks, principles to try and both understand knowledge work, but also look at how people could integrate their physical work and their knowledge work better, but also maybe even distribute cognitive effort better. And that's inspired a lot of my work and research that I do today. And I'm actually still an academic researcher. I'm actually finishing my PhD. You know, finishing is a very relative term, isn't it? But I'm doing my PhD at Loughborough University still. Um, it's been ranked the number one university in the world for sports science. So I, I dropped that in there. And uh, exploring specifically knowledge work as a cognitive endurance activity and gathering data among some of the world's highest performing companies to try and build a better picture about what's going on. It's refreshing to hear because we've been ensconced in Silicon Valley and that's a lot of very similar analogy that I make as well, where if you're the number one company in ride sharing or social networks, the value that you create and capture is exponentially larger than the number two, number three player. So just like in sport where a couple milliseconds or a couple meters, the difference between a gold medal and a silver bronze medal a very similar dynamic, if not a more extreme dynamic, happens in the intellectual battlefield. And it's always been puzzling to me that professional athletes, you know, the folks that we work with, and I'm sure that you work with as well, they're very, very thoughtful and dialed in around their protocols or training, measuring their recovery, fatigue, and load. And for intellectual workers, at least a lot of my friends coming out of the Stanford Computer Science Program, their protocols are very haphazard, kind of like the stereotypical pull an all-nighter, jam for 20 22 hours straight, crash for another 16 hours and just do this haphazard routine while chugging a bunch of sugary caffeine water. And and I think clearly one can extract and just deliver much higher quality work if they were a little bit more thoughtful about the routines. And I think on the other side, we had a recent conversation with Alex Hutchinson, who's author of Endure, who I think his recent book, that was like a New York Times bestseller, but I think it really covered a lot of the notions that you're investigating with Tim Noakes's and Samuel Marcour's work around how cognitive fatigue or mm. perceived exertion is like one of the dominant factors that predicts performance, which implies that the perception of exertion is such an important factor of how one ultimately performs. Absolutely. Yeah. And some of the data that I've been gathering, obviously it's preliminary, but I'm looking in particular at cognitive performance. So I'm measuring cognitive performance twice a day using a smartphone-based cognitive testing app And then I'm also simultaneously measuring self-report measures of things like stress and mood using validated scales and then objective measurements of sleep as well, for example, including a number of other variables. But you're already starting to see some really interesting relationships in that data. And a lot of it's quite intuitive. But I think that everyone thinks that they're the exception, don't they? And, you know, we all like to think that we're the exception to the rule, particularly when it comes to sleep deprivation and inadequate sleep and you know, there's this great kind of stat that I could roll out over and over again, which I'm sure that many of your guests have shared before. But after 18 hours of wake, that's equivalent to working from 8 a.m. to 2 a.m., yeah. your performance is equivalent to being legally drunk. And someone came back to me once and they said, well, you know, there's some studies that suggest that kind of a moderate dose of alcohol can actually improve productivity. And <laughs> I'm saying, yeah, you're way beyond that. 
you know, you're legally drunk in most European countries after 18 hours of wakefulness. And they did a really other interesting study. It was back in 2004, I think, by a research group by, uh, led by someone called Van Dongen. And basically, they restricted sleep for this group in a number of different conditions. And they restricted sleep for one unfortunate group entirely. So they went without sleep entirely for, for one night. Another group, they restricted it for four hours. Another group, six hours. Another group, eight hours wasn't really a restriction, but they controlled those conditions for a two-week period. And then they monitored their cognitive performance using something called a psychomotor vigilance task. Hmm. And in particular, they looked for lapses of alertness and working memory. And so what they found was, as you'd expect, you know, for the group whose sleep was restricted entirely for one night, that their lapses in alertness and working memory shot right up. The group who slept for eight hours a night were fine. But then the group that slept for six hours, after 14 nights of sleep restriction to six hours, their performance in terms of that lapses in alertness and working memory was equivalent to going without sleep for an entire night. Now, a lot of people, they listen to that and say, wow, that's interesting. But, but actually, the second part of the study was more interesting for me. And that's because they also got people to do something called your local sleepiness scale. And basically, what they found was that, as you'd expect, the group whose sleep was restricted entirely for one night, um, their self-rated sleepiness leapt right up really quickly. Um, the group which slept for eight hours per night, self-rated sleepiness was, was pretty static. They were getting adequate sleep. Um, but most interesting to me was that the group that slept only six hours per night, mm -hmm. initially their sleepiness kind of increased a little bit, but then it tapered off. So essentially after 14 nights of really inadequate sleep, their performance was equivalent to going like they had they'd done an all-nighter. But they felt like they were fine. And this is the interesting kind of tension when we talk about things like perceived exertion and our own perception is that it is really important. But at the same time, we can trick ourselves so easily. And when it comes to sleep in particular, I think a lot of us are fooling ourselves and we think we're fine and we're probably performing like we're drunk. Just don't realize it. That's an interesting result. We should definitely have that paper linked in the show notes because I think a lot of people claim, yeah, I feel good on six hours. And mm -hmm. this piece of literature perhaps suggests that they've tricked themselves. I mean, yeah. uh, which is funny. <laughs> We're good. You know, sometimes I think you can use it. If anyone's interested, that paper is called The Cumulative Cost of Additional Wakefulness. Yeah. Uh, so you can add it in the show notes. But there is this cumulative cost. It was a really great title. It, it summed it up really well. But there's also some interesting studies around sleep and cognition that suggest that our perception of how much deep sleep we have in terms of what we're told actually has an influence on our cognitive performance. And actually, if we're told that we have more deep sleep or less sleep, that it essentially induces a placebo effect for good or for bad. And so one of the things that I sometimes do myself and also recommend to other people, especially you know me and many of the people that I kind of hang around with are very keen self-quantifiers to greater or lesser degrees. In certain conditions where you can't influence your sleep, then it's actually better not to record it. Because actually, once you've got this data and you know how bad performance it can be when your sleep is impaired, um, then it can just become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you know Sibley yourself. Exactly. Huh. So there's a lot of complexity here, which is kind of what makes it interesting. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting aspects for cognitive measurement is how applicable are some of these reaction time experiments really applicable to broader intelligence? Curious mm. to get the latest thoughts and literature there. What measures in terms of psychomotor vigilance tests or inspection time, reaction time, what do you think are the most associated with like broader intellectual function? It's a really good question. And it's one that I kind of ask myself regularly, because a lot of the tests that I'm doing are based on quite basic cognitive tests. You know, they I'm not kind of measuring kind of real world work performance. I'm measuring things like simple reaction time, procedural reaction time. But one test in particular that I use measures inhibitory control. It, there's a very plausible relationship between inhibitory control and downstream effects that affect real world performance. So there's some suggestions that diminished inhibitory control might cause an increased uh, reliance on biases and heuristics, for example, because there's a suggestion that inhibitory control, you know, essentially it's our ability to resist what's called a preponent response. So that instant reaction. So we might talk about uh, system one and system two, as Kahneman popularized in thinking fast and slow. And so you can think about inhibitory control, but basically it's the thing that you know, for a moment puts the brakes on system one for instant reaction and can help you think about the bigger picture. And it can maybe help you to not rely on that bias or that heuristic or that stereotype and gather a little bit more information to make a better decision. And as knowledge workers, absolutely key, whether it's kind of problem solving or decision making or even interactions in the context of a team. 
So I think there's a really plausible relationship there. And I've seen some quite significant effects on inhibitory control that uh, seem to be strongly associated with things like with sleep, but also with mood. And I'm writing up some of those papers at the moment, actually. And, but you're right that you know, they, these are blunt instruments. And actually, I'm looking at other measurement tools. I'm looking at things like EEG, for example, to try and get more sensitive measures of what's going on. I'm experimenting with some EEG measurements at the moment. And I'm working with a company called Emotive, who produce a, a number of uh, neuroinformatic technologies. Yeah. I'm convinced that probably not that long, I'm going to look back on the research I'm doing now. I'm going to say, wow, my instruments were so blunt. But it's kind of the best we've got at the moment. We've kind of got to start somewhere. And the statistical analysis I'm doing is encouraging. I think we're looking down the right path. And I think it makes sense to start with these fundamental building blocks of cognition. But I'm really interested in how we can maybe start to develop some more sophisticated tools to model and measure performance in the context of knowledge work. And I think there's some great things on the horizon. Absolutely. I mean, I think my interest in nootropics and cognitive enhancers, I mean, I think that's the, I guess, a limitation or a limitation of how we understand how the brain functions as a way to show efficacy or show null effects, right? And I think that, mm -hmm. and I agree with you that these seem fairly blunt, but it makes sort of building block sense that if you have faster inspection time or reaction time, these are building blocks of higher order cognition. So while they're mm. not necessarily saying, hey, we can necessarily prove that you're going to be able to solve calculus problems faster, maybe you could just measure that directly. But there does seem to be some effect of some of these interventions on some very primal cognitive measurement tasks. I'm curious, so for the inhibitory function measurements, like what does that look like in terms of like the actual task? Just, to, just so, to break it down for someone to like imagine, okay, like what tasks am I being measured on my phone or on a computer screen? So there's a number of different tasks that you can use to measure inhibitory control. And uh, a really classic one is called a Stroop test or a mm. Stroop task. And so, for example, in the Stroop, you will be instructed to press spacebar, for example, on your computer um, when you see one kind of stimulus, but then resist pressing spacebar when you see another kind. And, and a typical one is where you have to press spacebar when you see a word that is written in blue color. Um, but then the word that pops up is red. And so it's the word red written in blue, and you yeah. have to inhibit that response. And so you measure uh, with a Stroop test, typically there'll be three different conditions. There'll be a baseline, and then there's what's called a congruent, and then an incongruent condition. But that task can take a little bit longer. Actually, one of the tasks that I use uh, and get people to do a couple of times a day over a tracking period is a bit simpler. It's called a go-no-go -no -go task. And so in this particular version, then people are presented with this kind of grid um, that looks like windows in a house. And they have to basically shoot one type of alien and not shoot another type of alien, depending on their color. And it sounds so simple, but again, we are testing these building blocks of cognition. And actually, we've seen some really statistically significant results, and you know, these tests have been used for a long time. But that question still remains, how does this translate? And I think that we need to push that forward and continue to explore that question. Yeah. You know, in the next study that I'm doing, one of the things that I'm looking at is comparing this with some self-report measures of work performance that have been validated quite well, and then some other measures which look at for example, our ability to switch off from work, because it's very plausible that, you know, that mechanism around inhibitory control might be associated with that. And there's already some evidence to suggest that link. So yeah, there's some interesting avenues that we can delve into. Yeah. And I think that in, in sports science, we've actually looked at things I think that actually sound quite similar to your inhibitory control markers for sports performance in terms of conflicting information, making a high risk decision, right? Like mm -hmm. you could do like a rugby run and you'd go left or right and you have conflicting information to turn left or right. And that's something that we've been looking at with our research partners with nootropics or ketone esters as an intervention. Mm -hmm. Perhaps while it's harder to extrapolate towards like software engineering ability from an inhibitory control <laughs> task, but from a sports performance perspective, when you are making go left or or go right decisions mm. or go or no go. That to me is a lot more of a direct jump from inhibitory control task to a left or right turn decision on a rugby field or a soccer field. And then perhaps mm. from there, we can start building more building blocks towards something like creative work in terms of making an advertising campaign or mm. coding an extra line of code. How about working memory? I mean, I think obviously working memory seems to be another obvious task where like if your digit span memory increases, 
because that seems pretty fundamental. But I guess on the con side, people argued that that kind of working memory is only specific for that kind of task. Or mm -hmm. like a chess master, they can hold some really, really high number of board positions in their head. But when they do like a completely different memory task, their working memory capacity is similar to like another average human. What are your thoughts on some of the working memory capacity questions? I think working memory is a, is a fascinating area. And actually, there's some recent evidence emerging that's kind of challenged some of the the ideas we've got about the, the limits of working memory. I mean, we always used to say, oh, it's between four and seven items, but there's some challenges to that now. And uh, But in working memory, people have been exploring this for a long, long time. And I think one of the most famous tests of working memory that many of you will have heard of is called the NBAC task. Yeah. This continuous, um, it tests continuous performance. Uh, I think it was developed like back in the 50s. But I agree that I think you know, working memory, um, it clearly has a very clear role in our day-to-day -day life and work. And we could see how if we can improve working memory, then it's likely that we could see some benefits in our life. I mean, you made another interesting point then again about the transfer. And I think you know, one of the challenges of like, for example, many of the games and many of the techniques and courses to try and improve cognitive performance, especially ones that are based on smartphones, when people have investigated them, it's basically demonstrated that it makes you better at the game, right. um, but not necessarily anything else. I think there was quite an interesting study recently that looked at teaching kids chess and found that absolutely, if you teach a kid chess, uh, to play chess, then, then they get better, get better at chess. Better at playing <laughs> chess. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily mean they can take over the world. And, and I think that, again, you know, this is an issue. But and one of the things that I see kind of in the data and the literature, but certainly in, um, in my research as well, is that basically once we start to get impaired, whether that's through inadequate sleep or too much stress or whatever, or we just simply get tired and fatigued or bored, it actually seems to be those more complex cognitive capabilities that start to diminish performance first. Mm. And so, you know, I see in my data the most significant effects generally in a knowledge work population with those more complex cognitive tasks representing slightly more sophisticated cognitive abilities. And so working memory is a good example of a task which is a bit more complex and it is a bit more demanding. I've got this wonderful test that basically it's like probably one of the most comprehensive cognitive tests called the RVIP test. And it's got some similarities with cycle and motor vigilance, but basically it stands for rapid visual information processing. Uh, it lasts for kind of about eight minutes. And basically you're presented with a continuous stream of numbers on the screen. And you have to tap space whenever you see a sequence of three even or three odd numbers. And it sounds really simple. But because it's completely continuous and it switches between you know, even and then odd and then even, you're constantly having to switch between trying to pay attention to whether you're looking for another even number or another odd number. And, mm. and it basically takes people to the limit. And you know, we see with that test some significant differences. But the problem with that, again, is that it's a really horrible thing to do um, once, never mind getting someone to do it every day. So we're always trying to kind of balance with cognitive assessment. You know, what will the the participant tolerate uh, in terms of burden and time and the commitment and uh, and what will give us the best data. And, and it's always a bit of a trade-off. And we always used to look at, a lot of people in research used to look at simple reaction time, for example. But one of the problems with simple reaction time is that in some conditions, like in some conditions of sleep deprivation, for example, we actually see improvements in simple reaction time. Why? Just less inhibition? That would be my hypothesis. Yeah. Um, but what you often find is that it seems to be like you know, the researchers kind of a bit because i saw this as well in some of my participants that actually in simple reaction time <laughs> performance improved and when i you can't believe it when i saw you know i was scanning through the data uh, i'm doing some like if anyone wants to get really geeky into this i'm using some linear mixed effects models and so i'm testing kind of the model with this uh, i'm looking at sleep duration versus cognitive performance in these different tasks and suddenly i see this significant relationship pops up between a simple reaction time and sleep duration and i'm all excited but then i plot it and i see it goes the wrong way People are getting faster when yeah. sleep is inadequate. I'm like, crap, you know, this is like not what I want to see, but you've got to report it. But anyway, a few researchers have seen this and maybe it's due to, as you say, um, reduced inhibition. There was actually a paper published just a few days ago in Frontiers in Physiology. And mm. um, they did an experiment where the Finnish army, they restricted sleep in this poor group of participants for 60 hours, 60 and during that time, they looked at the effects on physical performance and also cognitive performance. Yeah. And sure enough, they found in the cognitive performance um, that actually in uh, some of their simple reaction time actually improved. Um, but then overall, you know, it's a bad thing. Yeah, that's Go funny. Go read the paper for yourself, but you don't want to be awake for 60 hours. I think that's the bottom line. But they might shoot the wrong person. 
Exactly, they might shoot their friends. Uh, and, and you know, in all seriousness, the cognitive test battery that I use twice daily in the knowledge work population was originally developed and deployed with the US military. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons it's this kind of alien go-no-go task um, about shooting friends and not foes. Uh, sorry, the other way around. Maybe I'm sleep deprived shooting foes and not friends. Right. It's because there's a real world consequence to that. And back to your point, in a sports context, athletic context, in a military context, that link between these fundamental cognitive capabilities and a real world impact is more clear. I think simple reaction time is like an interesting marker. I think there's an interesting relationship around inhibition control there. We recently had a professional gamer who's been on the program noted, who's been measuring and optimizing his simple reaction time speed. And I think he tested himself down to like 60 or 80 milliseconds, which is... Like, I think the average baseball player is like around 100 one, you know, or 120. So like definitely he was seeing that he was able to optimize himself through a battery of like nootropics and all these kind of crazy interventions, obviously N equals one. Have you looked at different interventions or is your work more focused on the framework of measuring cognition? And if you so, look at interventions, what do you think are the most promising interventions that you've seen or that you play around with personally, whether they're nootropics or different meditation, mindfulness exercises before a task, diets, ketones, caffeine, not caffeine, right? Like a lot of things that like I think people are already experimenting, especially in our community with nootropics or things that can alter some of these things. In terms of the focus of my research and particularly around my, my PhD, I'm really quite focused around measurement. And one of the reasons I'm really interested in measurement is because I want to create a useful toolkit so we can test interventions. Yeah. But I'm pretty agnostic in terms of interventions, uh, in terms of my research work. But in um, in my professional work, you know, I work in knowledge work with various different organizations, but I also work in sport. And the company that I work with, Hints of Performance, works particularly in motorsport. And mm-hmm. so we work across a number of different series, including Formula One, Formula Two, Formula Three, GP3. Um, so our coaches and that team there, they're working with measurement but also obviously trying to optimize race performance of these drivers and simple reaction time is a significant component of that the most potent performance enhancer adequate sleep now actually in a formula one driver that can be quite difficult to maintain because they're traveling so much so some of our interventions are actually based around mitigating the effects of jet lag and looking at how you can reduce circadian disruption by basically starting to move into that time zone in advance of travel Mm. selective use of melatonin at particular times but also caffeine and I think you know, caffeine is probably like one of the best molecules in the world. You know, it's so potent. And sometimes I wonder if caffeine was suddenly was just synthesized like today, would it be legal? Would it be controlled? I think it definitely would be. I think you can make an argument for sugar as well. Yeah, these potent molecules and caffeine chemically is in the same group as a number of different molecules, which you get arrested if you're using them or carrying them around. And so one of the things, interesting things that we see is that in some of the people that we've worked with is that you can basically get people to do some of these more basic cognitive tests and determine the optimal caffeine dose, yeah. uh, both in terms of dosage and, and timing. And it does seem that there is an optimal dose. You can actually start to see deficits or uh, declines in performance when you take too much. There's actually a big U.S. Army research. I don't know if you've seen that paper, but it's like they've looked at optimal dosing for the war fighting. That's very interesting. I've not come across that paper. I'd be interested to read that. Yeah, it was interesting because I think there's some critique around why did you guys spend millions of dollars on telling people how to use caffeine? And it's like, well... I guess people kind of well understood caffeine, but yeah, I think at that level, you want to, you know, finally tune exactly how much you want to dose according to body weight and the length of exercise and all these bespoke variables. Hey listeners, Dr. Brianna Stubbs jumping in here. You may remember Jeff hinting at a special HVMN ketone deal in the intro. Well, it's time to listen up. Until the end of the month, we are offering $50 off a 12-pack of HVMN ketone. All you have to do is type in the URL www.hvmn.com forward slash pod and you're eligible for that offer. Again, that is www.hvmn.com forward slash pod. The link will also be in the show notes. This offer is running until the end of November 2018, everyone. So act fast and fuel up. Sounds like sleep, caffeine, obvious things that work. Anything else in terms of things that are on more on the cusp or things that you're exploring? One of the challenges when you're working in an athletic context is obviously that these athletes are part of World Anti-Doping Agency testing pools. Yep. And so you've got to make sure that like whatever they're taking, that it's the athlete's responsibility ultimately, but also the coach yeah, our coaches are very conservative, rightly so, yeah. about kind of what they're recommending and what people are taking. And and actually, I think even for top athletes and top drivers, 
Um, actually, it is still about getting the basics right. But yeah, on a personal level, I know there are some people experimenting with some nootropics, uh, not kind of necessarily um, you know, clients, and that's not something that kind of at a company level we'd we'd recommend. But right. some people are interested in it, and they're interested in particularly in saying, look, I'm going to do this regardless, but can you help me kind of measure the impact? And certainly, you know, I'm interested to see that, but I've got to say, like, it doesn't seem like many things work very well, even N equals one. And I think that with a lot of these things, like the most powerful kind of impact is often placebo. But that said, I think that the demand is huge. They published a study in Nature last year about the use of stimulants for the purposes of cognitive performance enhancement based on an anonymous survey. And in all the regions they looked at, the self-reported use of stimulants, both prescription and kind of off-label and illegal, um, had increased, particularly in Europe. And so there's this really interesting thing where personally, you know, I'm very interested in this area and I'm pro getting the basics right. But also I think that it's important that we also explore how you know, some of these molecules might be able to help us. You know, I'm thinking in terms of, uh, you know, obviously there's a performance enhancement in the workplace, but there's people in kind of really critical roles where, again, like I said, you can't always control your sleep. Yeah. One of the things I often talk about is, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I encourage people to think about life more in seasons. Um, I, you know, I certainly try and apply this to myself because one of the challenges at like the current way that we live and work is that we just try and be on all the time. Whereas actually for most of human history, we've lived in this very seasonal way, you know, where there's been times of war, there's been times of peace, there's been times of feast, there's been times of famine. famine and, yeah. We're very well set up, you know, our genetic load has prepared us for that kind of lifestyle. But we always try and be on. And, and I think one of the problems with kind of so-called smart drugs is that sometimes it's just masking actually some deeper problems about how we live and work. But actually, I'd like to think that we could look forward to a time where we could have these genuine periods of recharging, where we look to trying to recover the most natural and the best way possible. We maybe tried to tweak a few things in normal time. But actually, you know, when we were in these kind of mission periods, you know, whether you're a management consultant trying to finish kind of a really important project for a client, you know, whether you're a kind of a warfighter in a combat situation, whether you're a, a medic who's dealing with a crisis and has had to pull a double shift just because they need you to help. If I was getting treated by a doctor in a crisis situation and, and she'd had to pull a double shift because that's what it took with all the, the, all the people who needed help and she wasn't able to sleep. But if she was able to take a proven product to improve her cognitive performance, you know, I'd much prefer the doctor in that context who had taken the proven safe product that could improve their cognitive performance to help me right. rather than the doctor who hadn't. So I think, you know, it's another one of these situations where it's very easy to kind of take an extreme position and kind of say, well, you know, we should do it all natural or kind of go the other way and say, you know, the future is kind of biohacking everything and uh, becoming kind of you know, transhuman. When actually, I think that the challenge is, is how do we kind of navigate and try and take the best from these different approaches and take a more kind of thoughtful, seasonal approach to life and work that's more sustainable, that actually helps us to try and take some of the benefits from these different approaches and also maybe mitigate some of the potential downsides as well. Well said. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about actually personally around the notion of periodization or cycling, the cyclical nature of dieting or training blocks. And again, I think this is something that's very common in professional sport where you have mm. training blocks of hard sessions, light sessions, recovery sessions, maximal sessions. And I think that with some of our athlete and military customers, they're trying to apply that for nutrition as well. And I can imagine that very much in line with what you're saying, I think why aren't knowledge workers also applying some of these notions around cycling or periodizing workload, creative load, recovery load. I sense that's something that will be more and more common and popularized within the biohacking community. And it's something that I think people are cycling on and off. And I think for like a ketogenic diet, that's what I do personally. I think it's just more sustainable. And I think the data on, at least for some of the longevity data on animals, a cyclical ketogenic diet was just as effective for like ad infinitum ketogenic diet for longevity markers. So I think there's going to be just a lot of more research in the area of just how do you periodize and optimize some of these interventions? How do you find that balance? One thing that I thought was interesting was the Formula One racing, where I think in compared to a lot of other sports, it's more similar to an intellectual chess match almost over like a physical attribute sport, right? Because you're just making decisions. It's quite physically demanding, but it's more mm. of like a endurance and like, I guess, an ability to not get freaked out because you're moving so quickly. But you're making like mm. just split second <laughs> decisions all the time as opposed to necessarily having to like lift a lot of weights or sprint really fast. What 
in your experience, is the difference between an elite Formula One driver versus, you know, someone like myself who I don't even drive anymore because I live in San Francisco and everyone takes Ubers <laughs> and Lyfts, but, uh, but like an average person who isn't able to make that split second decision. One of the incredible characteristics of the best Formula One drivers, in my opinion, is their consistency. So if you look at kind of, you know, the average Formula One race and the duration, and, you know, for a couple of hours, basically, they are driving the limit of that, that mechanical system um, you know, with millimeter precision again and again and again for hundreds of laps in an environment that, you know, in some ways is quite well controlled. But, in other, but you know, you're not there on that track when you're right. You're on that circuit with multiple other drivers. Right. But yet they're still able to produce this consistency and to hit exactly the point that they need to. All at these incredible speeds and they're processing huge amounts of data. You, know, you talk about working memory again, you know, the number of items that they're holding. And, and it's interesting, I've actually gathered some cognitive performance data on some Formula One drivers and actually drivers in some other series. And there are actually measurable differences you do see in terms of normal distribution. There are definitely outliers. And I gathered quite a large body of data. It's large for the kind of population that I looked at, where basically I was in Davos and at the World Economic Forum. And outside of that vent, kind of in the town, we kind of set up a testing station mm -hmm. and tested kind of CEOs and all kinds of interesting people. Um, but then also measured a Formula One driver and then also um, an F-16 pilot and, and some other people. And basically, I don't think we'll be able to publish it just because the conditions weren't super well controlled. But I'm kind of gathering this personal kind of interesting data set. Um, but when I looked at that data, you know, um, they do perform exceptionally well, particularly in terms of sustained attention. They are able to sustain their attention mm. better than someone in a, a, the normal population. But when I did this little experiment, I basically got people to do it both in a controlled condition, in a quiet condition, and then also in a distracted condition. And one of the things that we saw in the drivers as well is that they seem to be more resistant to distraction. And um, you know, when a task is, in, is put in front of them, um, you know, they are better able to focus on that task and ignore the irrelevant stimuli. The other kind of funny thing, um, just uh, kind of anecdotally that I've seen kind of in working with these drivers, both in Formula One, Formula Two and Formula Three, is in that test that I mentioned before, that kind of eight minute rapid visual information processing kind of uh, marathon. The majority of people who do that test, you know, when they finish it, um, they never want to do it again. You, uh, sometimes I kind of worry that people are going to start crying in it. Is that bad? And I'm sure some of your listeners will probably leap at the chance to take part, but most people don't like it. But almost you know, to a person, the Formula One drivers and the, the drivers in those top series, when they finish that the first time, their immediate response is, can I try it again? Because I want to do better. Yeah. How can I improve? Yeah. And and I think, you know, there's these very specific skills. We can measure some things that are very special about Formula One drivers and drivers in these top series. But, but I think there is that kind of great sustained attention, the precision, the consistency. But a lot of it, I think, comes down to just this deep drive to improve, yeah. this pursuit of excellence, which if you look at the footage in a Formula One car and you see the speed and the circuit and the barriers are going past you and how fast the corners are coming up to you. And you think about the precision with which they need to actually create a lot of force in braking to make sure they brake at the right time in the right way. And it's completely overwhelming, but these people have been driven to do this from such a young age. And it's been this kind of incremental improvement season after season after season where the cars have got gradually faster, where the braking points have got later and have got harder, um, you know, where the mechanical grip has improved. And so they have gone on this journey over time that has equipped them to do that, which has been driven by this desire to improve and to optimize. And, and as you said, that I think Formula One in particular is a really interesting metaphor. And in some ways, it's a kind of microcosm. And we sometimes call it a laboratory for how do you optimize human performance, you know, particularly where you're blending the physical and the cognitive. Yeah. And so, yeah, we've been very privileged to work in that environment for about 20 years now. And we've got a great team of coaches there and a great team supporting them doing some really interesting work. One thing that struck me as you're explaining some of the work you do there is that around sustained attention is that do you have some suspicion around the population change over this generation where we're constantly being interrupted with smartphones and deluge of data versus previous generations? Just my suspicion is that I just know for me personally, when I was you know 12, I didn't have a smartphone. I just knew that my ability to sustain attention was much better where I could just get obsessed with mm -hmm. building a Lego set for like seven hours straight or like taking apart a watch or, or something. And now it's just like hard not to get your ping and, and get distracted. Do you have any thoughts on that? Suspicion <laughs> that like there's a population level decrease 
in the ability of people to sustain attention now. Because it is kind of funny that you mentioned, oh, eight minutes of just like looking at numbers and people are like crying. It's like hardly that's torture. But I understand what that you're You've like. You've never tried it, Jeffrey. You've got you to give it a go. <laughs> I've done some of these tasks myself. I, I think I'm more on the side of like, I think my ability to sustain attention is like reasonable. So I think I'm cut more in that pull. But do you suspect that just like our generation is less able to sustain attention just because of the environment. I'm concerned. My wife and I have got two kids. They're two boys, four and, and seven years old. And so many parents talk about this and people you know, who just know kids, friends have got kids, relatives have got kids, and you just see how adept they are at yeah. navigating their way around an iPad, for example. Right. Um, you know, they just figure out your password just by watching you and they can, before you know it, they're on Netflix and, and watching hopefully something appropriate. Um, right. But I think that I'm very pro-technology. What a surprise. And I actually think that these systems that we've got are incredibly powerful tools, but they're terrible masters. I think one of the risks that we've, one of the traps we've fallen into is that we've conflated familiarity with expertise. And so, you know, I can watch like my kids navigate their way through an iPad and everyone's like, oh, you know, they're, they're experts. Well, they're not, they're not, they're just very familiar. And so, you know, actually, I think there's a really powerful analogy in language and the acquisition of language. Because we accept that language is a powerful tool. It's arguably one of the most powerful tools that, that humanity has ever had access to. Mm -hmm. And we look at language and how we acquire language, and we accept that a lot of language acquisition comes through exposure. So we live in France, but originally from the UK, and, and, you know, and our kids have learned most of their French through simple exposure. My wife and I are both English, and so they picked it up at school with friends, but you know they're both pretty much fluent now. But at the same time, they also learn a structure around language. So they're in French school and they're learning the grammar and they're learning how to construct sentences and their vocabulary is expanding in a more structured way so that they can actually become masters of this language eventually. But with technology, it's so new in terms of the span of human history that we like to think that we're experts. But really, I think we're basically just like toddlers trying to figure this stuff out. And so I think the challenge is how do we kind of find the right balance between learning through exposure and also what do we need to really achieve mastery over these tools so that we're not slaves to it? And I think this is the kind of the bigger picture that I think, you know, the meta narrative I think about when I'm considering you know, what does it mean for sustained attention and distraction, for example. You know, I think that you ask a good question, is sustained attention worse now? in young people than it used to be. I think one of the challenges is we don't have a particularly great data set to compare it with. All we've got is anecdote. And that, you know, anecdotally, we've got a number of friends who are teachers. Our friends who've been teachers for decades would say that, well, kids now can't pay, his attention, uh, pay attention as well as they used to. I think, you know, the, the interesting thing is the technologies to distract us have accelerated in terms of their maturity and sophistication much faster than our capacity to really understand what's going on. Yeah. Back in end of 2013, something like that, I think he was, you know, I read a book by Nur Eyal, I think I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but basically he wrote a book called Hooked about how to build habit forming products. Yeah. So what's that? It's getting on for five years ago. And he had this great model around how to build a habit-forming product. And I remember I kind of read this and I was like, this is great. You know, there's the trigger, there's the action, um, there's the variable reward, there's the investment. Yeah, this is a gamification. This is how you get addicted. This is Silicon Valley, sort of why yeah. they're getting critiqued in recent months. They're just like yeah. mentally addicting you dopamine hit of like a notification. And everyone's like, oh, you know, it's like, <laughs> this is news. But, you know, yeah. Yeah, like, people have been talking about this for ages. Yeah. And we're basically creating these systems to kind of take advantage of our dopaminergic system. Yeah. We're kind of dumping dopamine and we wonder why. The challenge is, is that basically, if you look at the biases that we have, many of those cognitive biases have been adapted for most of human history. And so if we just zoom in on the novelty bias that we have, for example, so we know that actually there's research that demonstrates that even in the anticipation of um, novelty, so even just anticipating discovering or being exposed to something new, our brain secretes dopamine. Mm -hmm. And so we sense that reward. And so if you think for most of human history, that has been incredibly adaptive. Because if I was living in a village society and I was kind of walking through that village and I looked up at the mountains and I've never been to the other side of that mountain range before. But in anticipation of discovering something new on the other side of that mountain range, my brain secretes dopamine. And that sense of reward and that anticipation of that novelty will probably drive me to invest the energetic resources and the time to go and explore that other side of the mountain and find new opportunities to grow and find new resources and new people. 
And so there's an argument, I think, that suggests that that novelty bias for most of human history may have been responsible for driving our expansion across the planet. But today, that same incredibly powerful novelty bias is connected with the continuous stream of novelty on my smartphone. Now you're addicted to checking your Twitter feed or Instagram or Facebook feed. And the problem is, is you know, and then we just we just feel bad about it. And yeah. so a lot of people are now saying, oh, you know, we've got to kind of resist kind of this stuff. But the problem is as well, we know that in terms of behavior change that, that generally when you rely on willpower, you generally fail. Yeah. So regardless of what you look at, um, at how you look at kind of willpower or self-control, if you choose to kind of um, interchange the two, the interesting thing about kind of self-control and behavior change is that for most of human history, self-control has been appropriately balanced with the choices that we had available. You know, I mentioned before about seasons. We didn't need a strategy to think about our food intake because generally times of plentiful food, which were few and far between, would be rapidly followed by a period of famine. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, we've kind of got to this stage where I think we started to beat ourselves up about our technological habits now and feel bad about it. And so you're going to kind of probably see some kind of, we are seeing these kind of behavior change interventions around trying to address this. But I don't necessarily think it's addressing the root cause of the problem. And there's some quite interesting research that sheds a light on this um, that suggests that rather than willpower operating like a finite resource, that actually self-control operates more like a valuation process rather than operating like this kind of battle that we can win or lose. And there's actually some quite interesting neuroscience related to this. Um, There was a research called Berkman. uh, Berkman and a group last year published a paper called Self-Control as a Values-Based Choice, Mm. which suggests that there's a region of the brain called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that might be responsible for calculating the return on investment of the effort required by a task. And so if you think that we've got this valuation system built in, but for most of human history, that valuation system was basically built for a different age. But I wonder whether, you know, some of these kind of solutions potentially to this distraction and interruption epidemic and the tools that we're using is actually, again, maybe taking advantage of some of that inhibitory control, taking a step back and thinking about what we really value, what we truly value, rather than kind of being caught in this kind of this kind of fake value that's driven by these kind of, you know, dopaminergic manipulation, essentially. I would say that, yeah, you're absolutely right. Only within the last 50, 60 years are we surrounded in an environment that we're, fortunately, compared to like most of human history, uh, environment overabundance, overabundance of food, mm. overabundance of information. And perhaps, you know, that new environment is why we're seeing that one in two Americans is pre-diabetic, one in two Americans mm. is obese. And within the last 10 years, I would say that there's an overabundance availability of information where, and I think that's an interesting point where the valuation of return on investment of like a swipe on your smartphone is very, very low investment mm. in a single instance, but there's a variable reward of like what kind of cool information, like, oh, is your friend getting married? Is there you know, a new baby or like they have a new toy or is he just boring and you feel like you just wasted 10 minutes of your life. So in your mind, then, do you see this as willpower as a limited resource or scarce resource? Does that mean being more thoughtful the environment we put ourselves into? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is an unsolved question, right? Like, I, I don't know if anyone has the solution here. And I think we also want to be thoughtful of not being overly Luddite and be like, hey, all technology is evil. Because I, I agree with you that technology has essentially resolved like the things that have killed most people, which has been famine and then like lack of information or lack of tool ability to access information. But what do you suspect to be interesting paths to explore? We've got to figure out ways to truly master technology. Yeah. And we could get really into the weeds here and also kind of way outside my scope of practice. And yeah. but you know, one of the things that interests me kind of peripherally is this idea of explainable AI, for example. Mm. And actually if we look at kind of how um, artificial intelligence and machine learning and these associated technologies are developing, and um, actually, it seems to me that one path that is absolutely crucial that we explore is explainable AI. And actually, you know, there's some quite interesting companies um, looking into this to help us to actually understand these systems and truly master them so that they don't, they don't master us. Um, but kind of taking it back kind of a, a step and, and focusing in on the human, which is more my area of expertise. There's some interesting research around self-control. And one of the kind of things that interests me is there's some research done by uh, Gala and Duckworth. That's Duckworth, Angela Duckworth, who wrote quite a lot about grit and that idea. They published a paper called More Than Resisting Temptation. And they suggest that according to their research, people with the highest self-control actually seem to use it the least 
day to day. And so kind of like, you know, that's to your point that self-control to some extent, I think it does operate like a resource. And Roy Baumeister, who um, talks about ego depletion, has got a bit of a hard time because actually some of those experiments have failed to replicate. But mm. it does have some characteristics of a resource. But it also seems to be fundamentally linked with our sense of valuation and our motivation. And we seem to be able to kind of instantly replenish this resource in certain conditions. You know, if, if suddenly you can kind of hack your motivation and that system. But self-control does seem to be most effective when we deploy it before we need it. And if we link it with goals or we create goals that are associated with something that we really value. And so I think that you know one of the paths that we do need to explore in terms of whether it's optimization or behavior change is actually accept some of the biases and limitations that we've got and try and find ways to kind of manage them and work around them. Because I think that one of the most unhelpful things is that we can just fall into this trap of just beating ourselves up and thinking that we're bad people because we fail. And I think it's so funny because I always need to take my own medicine. And but I kind of, as I'm sure you do, you kind of often you're kind of in this kind of like not exactly. I'm not in a biohacker community necessarily, but you're surrounded by people who are really interested in optimizing themselves and other people. And you can fall into this trap of kind of thinking that if you haven't woken up in the morning, done 20 minutes of meditation, um, you know, of course you fasted breakfast because right. you're doing a kind of uh, intermittent fasting restricting <laughs> protocol. And but you know, once you've done your kind of uh, your squats because you're squatting every day and written your goals down for the day and taking the dog for a walk, and you know, if you've not done all that stuff before like 5:30 a.m., then you know why yeah, are you even bothering? Yeah. Um, was it Mark Wahlberg who kind of published his like uh, daily routine? Yeah, it's like he wakes up like three thirty or something. I was like, what? Yeah. who is this guy? I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, you know what? Like maybe that's true, and like good yeah. for him. But yeah. I think the problem is, is that we also know with behavior change and goal setting, like one of the biggest ways to set yourself up for failure is to set completely unrealistic goals. Right. And so sometimes I just think, you know, maybe the starting point and the path is to actually just take a step back and just to say, you know, what do you really care about? Um, what do you really value and build a kind of a progressive path to help you to achieve that and try and, and sequence as well, not rather than trying to achieve everything all at once. It kind of goes back to you mentioned periodization. Right. And you know, I'm very much inclined to agree that we need to take a more periodized seasonal view of how we approach improving life and performance right. and actually start to say, these are the things I want to achieve, but actually I'm not going to try and do them all at once. You know, right. I'm actually going to create a plan. And I know a lot of people are already starting to think this way. But it can be quite liberating. Are you applying it to yourself? I know that one of the topics, and I think we'll end on some of these ideas, is that how do you stack some of like the low cycle cognitive load with medium load, high load? Is that something you apply personally as you're thinking about these ideas? Have you incorporated for yourself? Do you have frameworks or guidelines for how our listeners can take away? How should we start thinking about periodizing some of our work mm. in, in, in intellectual field? So you've teed me up perfectly yeah. for, my, for my kind of topic. So yeah. Going back to right at the beginning, I mentioned I was an endurance athlete. Yeah. And so I tend to look at knowledge work as an endurance activity yeah. through that lens. And so I was looking at how we distribute physical effort and we plan for physical endurance. And the simple way that we do it for athletes is we think about intensity zones. And broadly speaking, there's only three zones you really need to think about. And you can think about it as low, medium and high. Yeah. But I was kind of thinking, could I come up with some kind of framework like that to help people to create a plan for cognitive endurance? Mm. And so, so basically inspired by that, that kind of simple framework for in endurance sport, I came up with something I call cognitive gears. And basically, it's a plan for cognitive endurance. And so if you imagine for a moment that there are three cognitive gears, there's a low gear, which is characterized by times of rest and recovery and reflection. There's a high cognitive gear that's characterized by times where we're focused where we're maybe doing some kind of analysis, where we're really being productive. And then there's this middle cognitive gear that's characterized by the menial tasks and the switching work, which makes up at least part of most of our day. But if you think for a moment about your average day, the most of us will find that we spend the majority of our day stuck in that cognitive middle gear. And that middle gear is characterized by being caught in pseudo work, pulling our phone out every opportunity instead of having a break feeling like we're stressed that we're on someone else's schedule. Responding a bunch of emails, just like react, reacting yeah. to inbound. All the time. And we know that switching as well actually makes it harder to switch into that high gear for focus or down into low gear when we really need to. Mm -hmm. you know, there's this thing called attention residue. And so one of the things I encourage people to do is to start off by thinking about that framework and then considering when they are at their best. So what parts of their day, because basically you know, cognitive performance varies by about 20% during the average day. And about 20% of the population experience that variation as a peak, a valley, and a rebound. I might call them early birds. They feel at their best in the morning. 
Hmm. Some people, about 20%, experience it as a rebound, a valley, and a peak. And they might call them owls. They generally prefer evenings. About 60% are somewhere in between. But basically, those three phases, regardless of where you are, have distinct characteristics. And that peak is generally the best time for that high gear focus, for that analysis and that productivity. That valley is the best time for rest, for recovery and reflection. And that rebound is the best time for the menial tasks and the switching work that characterize at least part of our day. And actually, in that rebound period, interestingly, it actually seems like our inhibitory control is reduced. So we're more likely to switch anyway. But interestingly, that reduced inhibition actually might make us more creative or more open to having creative ideas, which we can then hopefully produce in the peak period, which kind of eventually comes around. But I kind of think if we start by maybe thinking about those three cognitive gears, we could begin by simply doing an experiment where we try to schedule that high cognitive gear work with the peak in our day. And that's that principle from endurance sport, knowing where to focus your effort. And during that time, experiment maybe with you know, the Pomodoro technique or something like that, 25 minutes on, five minutes off. And that's quite an interesting experiment for a lot of people because yep. some data would suggest that we check in on our communication tools once every six minutes. So Rescue Time, which is an app that you can, or um, a piece of software you can install to track kind of your use of various applications. Basically, that, their data from tens of thousands of people suggests that we check in on communication tools like Slack or whatever once every six minutes. So high gear, 25 minutes on, five minutes off. And then I think as an individual, we need to try and engineer environments focused for ourselves. But I think perhaps more importantly, if we are leaders with teams, how can we engineer environments for focus for our teams? So that's high gear. For the low gear about when to take a rest, well, for a lot of us, that could begin by simply scheduling rest in our diary. Most of us never, ever do that. You know, we don't put recovery. And if you can, Schedule that rest and reflection with the valley in your day. And then during that time, you know, the most effective breaks, according to the evidence, seem to be active, social, and natural. So mm-hmm. go for a walk in the park, something that you like. You know, once upon a time, I think it was called a lunch break before it went extinct, um, kind of on <laughs> certainly on the, the West Coast and in London. Or a smoke break or a, a <laughs> yeah, mid exactly. or a lunch martini or something. <laughs> there were some good things about that. Yeah. That, you know, we can talk about that, but you know, there's, um, we've lost it. And then obviously sleep is the big one. But then that middle gear, you know, I think for that middle gear, that starts by, by setting some boundaries for the switching tasks so it doesn't leak into every moment. You know, having those periods where we put the phone away. But then you know, when we are going to be doing those switching tasks and using these incredible digital tools that enable us to switch tasks rapidly and get through all that inbound, well, you know, schedule that for the rebound in your day. You know, if you're an owl, that's probably going to be in the morning. If you're an early bird, then it's probably going to be later in the day. Um, but whatever you do, one of the most important things that I say in thinking about these cognitive gears and the periodization is that I think one of the most practical strategies or the most practical tactics is to start the day on your schedule. So pay attention to when you're at your best and start that day with your schedule. If you're an early bird, really create some time for that peak work. If you're an owl, maybe the morning is at the time for you to get through the email and the inbound. But whatever the case let's try and move beyond this kind of um, post-industrial idea of uh, working like we're on a production line right. um, in front of our laptops and and start to rediscover our own rhythm. Well said. I want to ask, have you been able to successfully apply this to your own working routine? I reckon most of the time, but it goes in seasons still. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I think that the challenge is that, again, I think I'm in what I'd call a mission at the moment. I try to think about life in three seasons. I mentioned before there's recharge time. And during that recharge time, I'm really disciplined about trying to follow these principles, try to put my phone away, make sure I sleep adequately. During what I call normal time, I reckon I managed to follow this 80% of the time. So if I'm in a routine like that, but that 80% sometimes is loaded at a particular time of the year. And in the last four weeks, I've done 14 flights. Um, I'm about to start a new research project and I'm finishing setting that up. Um, I'm also kind of working on a number of different projects and I'm right in it. And you know what? It's gone completely out the window. Um, the only thing that I'm clinging onto is like seven hours of sleep a night. Um, everything else is like in the toilet. (laughs) But I think again, one of the things I often say to myself and other people is progress isn't linear and don't make perfection the enemy of good enough. I know that I'm not kind of practicing what I preach in all aspects right now, but I'll get back on it. Yeah. And that's fine. That's life. Yeah. You know, no one's perfect. And I think we've got to keep the end goal in mind. And sometimes 
you know, cut ourselves a bit of slack and just trust the process. And I think we'll get there in the end. This is a fascinating discussion. I mean, a lot of topics that you've been looking at are very dear to my heart. So it's a fun conversation. So how do people follow your work? How do people learn more about what you do with Hinsa? What do you got for the rest of the year in 2019 that you're excited about? On a personal level, one of the things I'm really excited about is my next research project where I'm going to be looking at some cognitive measures and combining some heart rate variability stuff mm-hmm. and looking into that. That's going to be exciting. Um, I'm going to be traveling around still, kind of speaking at events for a number of clients. Um, I haven't got anything kind of particularly big and public going on, but if anyone would like to invite me to an event, I'm always open to potential opportunities there. But if people want to follow my writing and my work and some of the preliminary results when I can share them, then I work with a company called Hintsa Performance, and we have a website there. It's hintsa.com. And you can check out the blog. I've also got a personal website where that's more kind of orientated towards kind of my obsessions and looking at sustainable high performance and knowledge work and cognitive performance as an endurance activity. My website is jameshewitt.net. It's H-E-W-I-T-T. And then, of course, on Twitter, uh, James P. Hewitt. And on any of those channels, please feel free to get in touch and ask you questions, share comments. I've learned an incredible amount from the audiences I connect with and there's always something new to find out. So it would be great to hear from some people. All right, pleasure. Thanks so much, James. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. As always, please send my producer Zill and I any feedback or topic or guest suggestions to podcast at hvmn.com. We read every single message and work really hard to make this program valuable and educational for you. Also, don't forget our ongoing special offer. By leaving a review on iTunes, you can get a one-month supply of our new Omega-3 product, Kato. Simply rate us with a written review on iTunes, screenshot it, and send it out to our email hotline. Again, that email is podcast at hvmn.com. Appreciate the love and support, and I'll see you again next week.